The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste to all of you and good evening. We will continue with our travel. We are getting close to the end of this in a few weeks We'll end this major subject and then we'll look into other subjects to be approached for our satsang. We are coming close to our study of the so-called Yoga of the Disciple, a Tibetan beautiful text containing advice for spiritual practitioners on the path of yoga. It is a very interesting study because it definitely wears the mark of the Tibetan style both in spirituality and in the practice of yoga, which I have described elsewhere in other conferences. I have skipped a few chapters and I want to look into the chapter which is called the Ten best things. Things which Tibetans say, this is best. It would be best to do this or that. And as you are going to see, there are three groups of three. And in each one of the groups of three, they go for the lower type of intellect, for the middle type of intellect, for the superior type of intellect. The Tibetan gurus are not afraid to divide the spiritual practitioners according to their intellectual level. This is something which is politically incorrect, and yet they do it because they are aware not everybody has the same strength of intellect. And as you are going to see, the spiritual practice for different levels of the intellect is different. Let's see the first triad, the first three. It says, for one of little intellect, the best thing is to have faith in the law of cause and effect, in the law of karma. There is nothing offensive in having little intellect. Jesus starts his list of nine blessings, the famous nine blessings in his Sermon on the Mount, with blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the... Like, there are people who are poor in spirit. They are not educated. They don't shine in their intellect. They do not have a high metaphysical understanding even, you know, a form of yoga like we teach here with energy, resonance, chakras, bodies, transfer, different laws and technicalities, for some people sometimes is a bit much. There are people who say, I want to love God. Can you give me something simple? There are many people who say, I want to practice one technique. Give me the Kriya Yoga technique. Give me the Laya Yoga technique, give me something, and thus I'm going to do that. As I said before, there is nothing wrong 
with acknowledging my intellect is not deep, I cannot go deep, and therefore I need something simple. I need a simplified thing. Like even the person that is poor in spirit can love God overwhelmingly. For example, a mother can love her baby with all the power of the maternal instinct and with all the power of the Vishuddha Chakra relationship, mother-child, and she doesn't need to be a genius for that. It's something which comes from instinct, from the polarity of the chakra, and the mother might even give her life for the child. Therefore, the mother can experience a state of selflessness, a state of detachment, a state of abnegation, although she did not meditate too much on metaphysical meanings, and she, is not, she might not be very advanced in her understanding of the secret laws of the universe. Therefore, you need to see, and I think a lecture like this one tonight will exemplify pretty clearly, like, where do I stand? Where does each and every one of us stand about this one? Tibetan yogis say, when you are of little intellect, you might have a formidable willpower. You might have incredible energy, vitality, sexual energy, imagination, and others. You might be a person that has an overwhelming abnegation, selflessness, capacity to love. And therefore, if there is no offense to say, I have less vitality than that person, I have less sexual energy than that person, I have less willpower and self-discipline than that person, I have, I have less capacity of loving emotionally than that person, I have less creativity, aesthetical sense and intuition than that person, and of course, it can be that I have less intellectual power than that person. Of course, in an integral yoga like we teach here, we'd always say, yes, but a person can actually develop their intelligence. Yes, you can. A person that is a vata, thin typology, a skinny type of person, by performing a lot of exercise, can become very muscular and become considerably more meaty and voluminous physically, it is possible to transform your basic constitution with a huge amount of effort. Like if you do five hours of pumping iron every day, of course that even if you are a vata typology, something will happen to your body which will have to respond to that. And if on top of it you are eating milk, fresh cow milk that has growth hormone in it, natural growth hormone, not the one added by the industrial milk industry, the one coming from the cow, naturally, 
and if you are eating proteins and if you are having all the right things and you have a kapha diet and all that, you can transform your body. Is it easy? No. Those of you that are kapha, and especially those of you that are a kapha pitta type of body, you just pump iron for three weeks and you look like Hercules. And those of you that are vata, 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 you pump iron three years to start looking a bit like Hercules. Of course, it's completely different from typology to typology. In a similar way, we sometimes see women that are kapha, and they are made by Mother Nature to look voluptuous like the Indian goddess statues, and they try to get skinny. Those women simply kill themselves in the process. Is it possible for such a woman to get skinny? Yes, but with considerable, with a hundred times more effort than for another woman that is born vata, and it won't be healthy for that woman to look like a vata woman. What I'm trying to say with these simple physical examples are, is it possible for a person that is specifically not intelligent to become much higher than average intelligent? Yes, but it is like for a vata person who tries to look like Hercules. It's not natural. It's not the prakriti of this life. It's not the DNA, the astrological things, and all the basic things which you got in this life. Can you violate Mother Nature and kind of steer the boat to an unnatural angle like this? Unnatural but good. Nobody says it's bad. Yes, you can, but with much, much more effort. We generally see people born in the astrological sign of the Gemini or people born in the astrological sign of the Aries naturally having an IQ higher than the average person. You can make a statistic among your friends how many of your Gemini and Aries friends have an IQ over 100 and, or over the average in your country because in some countries the, the average IQ is anyway higher than 100. So what I'm saying here is, of course, for some people, the intelligence, the IQ type of intelligence, which is not the same with emotional intelligence and other forms of intelligence, the IQ form of intelligence is not their natural weapon. Remember the Roman proverb, which says the eagle fights with its talons and the bull with its horns. You cannot ask an eagle to fight with the horns because it hasn't got any from Mother Nature. Through yoga, you can grow a pair of horns on an eagle, but they are never going to be as big as the horns of a real buffalo. Therefore, you shouldn't ask to the eagle to fight with the horns because that's pushing it out of its nature. That's why the Tibetan yogis echo here Jesus. Jesus say, says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. No, it's like he says there are people who are poor in spirit. And my job here on the planet Earth is not to make the poor in spirit intelligent. 
That's not why I came on this planet. I came to give a way of salvation, of spiritual emancipation, if you want Indian language, of liberation, even for the people that are poor in spirit, such as the path of humbleness, prayer, surrender, love, unconditional love, and all that. You don't need to be a genius. It's not rocket science to do that. It comes from somewhere else. In a similar way, our Tibetan yogis simply say, for the one of little intellect, yes, there are people who are of little intellect. But can't I first get a big intellect? Yes, but it's like the Vata person trying to become Hercules-like. Better live with what you have and use your talents. Don't tie to fight with the horns. This confusion is, it exists everywhere in so many ways. It's also the major confusion between the masculine and the feminine. Very often, especially in this direction, it happens not in the other, women have envied the obvious power which men have in some ways. While, of course, men do not have power in all the ways as we very well know today. But in some ways, men, for example, in most of the sports of this planet, even in chess, men are not competing with women. Simply because there is a difference and it's politically incorrect and it will make the feminists go through the roof, but still there is no competition. They are competing separately simply because men and women are built in a different way. And this does not say that men are superior or women are superior. It simply says that there are differences, some of them being DNA-related, anatomical, and others. Exactly in the same way, sometimes the male power is very obvious, and there are women, this is something which you learn in the Shakti groups and in the Vira groups as well, there are women who do not understand what is the power of the Shakti. The power of the Shakti is not like the power of Shiva or like the power of Avira. It's not about muscles and some other masculine, macho, Vira things. It's not there. A woman may long and say, what, can't I do that? If the guys do that, can't... Yes, but it defeminizes you. It's a pity. You are trying to, to fight with the horns. When God gave you talons, understand the talons, forget about the horns. In the same way, the Tibetan yogis say, if you want a shortcut, use what you have. And thus, for the one of little intellect, there might be a yoga path for developing the intellect, and then we can start looking from another vantage point. But if you don't do that, for the one of little intellect, the best thing is to have faith in the law of cause and effect. Don't think that people who hear about the law of cause and effect have faith in it. Isn't the whole Indian spirituality based on the law of cause and effect? Aren't the Indians 
Hindu, Buddhist, and others, aren't they supposed to be very spiritual people? Then how do you explain that millions of female fetuses are aborted every year just because that fetus had the bad luck of being a girl? Then how can it happen in India that women who become undesirable in a family, they are wrapped in cellophane, sprinkled with gasoline, and set on fire to get rid of one mouth to feed in the family? How do you explain a hundred thousand other abominations? In Rishikesh, people were pretending not to eat onion and garlic, although it was being sold under the counter of most vegetable sellers. And the very orthodox Hindus living in Rishikesh, who were, uh, you know, pointing fingers at... Uh, the foreigners practicing Tantra and so on, they were going in the night and fishing the fat fishes under the Ramjula Bridge, which the foolish tourists feed with crumbs of bread and which grow oversized and fat. And the villagers living there, they go in the night and catch them and they eat them, the great vegetarian Hindus. What is the law of cause and effect? Who believes in the law of karma? You, we live in a Buddhist country. They teach the law of karma in kindergarten, probably. When you read the Jataka stories, when your grandma reads you the Jataka stories of Buddha, there you are supposed to learn about the law of karma. But in this country, aren't people beating each other up? Killing each other? Stealing from each other? Cheating from each other? And doing a hundred thousand other abominations? Aren't people killing animals and eating them? Of course they do, which simply says a very simple thing. India, or Thailand, or Tibet, or you name it, people are having lip service. 90% of the so-called religious people are hypocrites. They don't believe in anything. They say that, oh, I learned about, oh, don't do that, it's good, it's bad for your karma. And then they do shit all day long. If you believe in karma, how can you do shit? To other people when you know because people don't really believe in karma yeah yeah there is this theory you know but uh, we see people having the luck of the pig we see people who kill 10 people and then they become millionaires and kingpins in some business or something and they are living in luxury and they are having the life of a life you know and they are supposed to be assholes and terrible people that committed murder. Like the law of karma, for most people, it seems not to exist. The truth, the sad truth is that even an elementary thing like the law of karma, 99% of the people in India, in Thailand, in Tibet, in China, in Japan, you name it, in countries where the law of karma is taught in the mainstream religion of that country, people don't really believe in karma. They say, they speak about it. But for example, when somebody offends you, you want to take revenge on the bastard. You never say, it was my karma to be offended, I paid my karmic debt, now it's over, 
I am not going to pay back anything because that was simply my karma. Nobody says that. People go and take revenge because revenge is sweet. People forget about karma, about the law of karma in two seconds. This is the incredible truth that even something as simple as the law of karma and people don't really believe in it. People speak about it, but when it comes to life, why? You are eating meat? The death of how many animals are you causing by paying for that meat? Because you all know the simple truth of this. If nobody starting in this moment, if nobody in this world would want to put meat in their mouth, the meat industry would go bankrupt in 30 days and all the killing of animals will have to stop because there will be no buyers. It's as simple as that. But it doesn't stop. So paying for it, because I've heard the ridiculous argument brought even by some Buddhist monks who are said, how comes that you guys eat chicken? And they said, well... Since the chicken is dead already, we are not killing it, and it can as well be eaten. That's the judgment of a total liar, hypocrite, idiot, who pretends not to understand the root of the problem. Because the root of the problem is that if you wouldn't have paid, and there wouldn't be a market for it, and somebody paid for it and offered it as a donation to you who are a monk, it would stop. If all the meat which is given as donation, the monks would say, we never touch such thing, then the consumption of meat on the market will decrease with 10%. And 10% less animals will get killed six months later because there is not a market for that. Therefore, Even this denotes that the law of karma is not really respected. If people, I say in the Karma Yoga lectures every month, at least if people would go from the Agama Karma Yoga lecture with this, there is a law of karma. Guide your life scrupulously according to the law of karma and the first smart thing to do is stop producing negative karma and start producing as much pleasant, positive karma as possible. It's not so difficult after all. And that is why the Tibetans are right. The first step, the kindergarten of spirituality is at least have faith in the law of cause and effect. I met an intelligent man practicing spiritual sciences in the West and I found out he had a real bizarre view on spirituality. And talking with him, I found out sooner or later the cause of it. The man did not believe in the law of karma. He said, oh, I think that the law of karma is just a bullshit story invented by Hindu and Buddhist priests to keep the population under control 
so that everybody will be afraid of accumulating negative karma and they will behave. Exactly as the Christians did the heaven and hell thing, the Buddhists did the karma thing. And in this way they transformed the population into obedient slaves. Only a very demonic mind could have come with such a ridiculous explanation when the law of karma is a law of action and reaction, of balance of things. It makes sense metaphysically in so many ways. And from Lao Tzu, and who was Lao Tzu or Confucius, whom were they trying to control when they spoke about the law of karma? What did they care, such detached Chinese teachers, what did they care about manipulation or transforming the population into slaves when they were such Vishuddha Chakra, high-level, puritanic spiritualists? This is why the first level is this. If at least you know that you are not very advanced intellectually, at least stick to the law of karma. That is going to save your ass. It is a safety net which is going to save the day. Maybe you don't have an incredible insightful intelligence that can see through the layers of illusion. At least then listen to the wisdom of Krishna and Buddha and Confucius and the likes of them, and therefore, for the one of little intellect, the best thing is to have faith in the law of cause and effect. Even this is very difficult for many people. Second, for the one of ordinary intellect, it means in this translation, for the one of average intellect, like little intellect, average intellect, high-level intellect. For one of ordinary intellect, which means average again, the best thing is to recognize both within and without oneself the workings of the law of opposites, or otherwise said, yin and yang. Yin and yang is already more subtle than the law of karma. In terms of Kashmiri Shaivism, the law of karma addresses to the lower levels below Maya. It addresses to the levels below the five Kanchukas. It refers to the levels of the limited self. It is the limited self which is the prisoner of karma and the five Kanchukas. But yin and yang... It is an echo of Shiva and Shakti. Yin and Yang is that there might be a oneness up there, which we don't see or understand because it's beyond the mind, but at the first level, the universe starts from a plus and a minus, from Purusha and Prakriti, from Shiva and Shakti. The essential thing is a law of opposites. This is a discrimination. There is a famous yogic mantra in India, which is chanted often, 
which says, O oh God, teach me the difference between real and unreal, or take me from unreal to real. It's said in both ways, it's illustrated in both ways. Teach me the difference between spiritual and non-spiritual, between virtue and vice and all that. This discrimination is called viveka in Sanskrit, and it is like you discriminate, you know, is this spiritual or is this material? In a school like Agama, especially at the highest levels of practice, when you go into Kashmiri Shaivism and the likes of that, even this distinction is blurred in some meditations when you have to refer to the ultimate oneness, which is like the top of the triangle, above Shiva and Shakti, above Yin and Yang. But very few people would rise at that level. And that is why the first thing to do is this discrimination. People will say, but Swami, according to the highest tantric teachings, there is no spiritual and material. Oh God, lead me from material to spiritual. What are you talking about? Material is Shakti, spiritual is Shiva. What do you say? Lead me from Shakti to Shiva? It's like Shakti is bad. Lead me from matter to spirit. Why? What's wrong with matter? In Tantra, there's nothing wrong with matter, because matter is Shakti, and matter has a secret spirit in it. God is 50% present in matter, immanent, here and now. And at the same time, God exists as transcendental spirit, as Purusha. Both are true at the same time. So this discrimination, take me from darkness to the light. What's wrong with darkness? Darkness is also part of the universe. If we create the good God and the devil, we have created duality. Therefore, you realize that this is not the highest vision, but it is still a very, very important understanding. That is why the Tibetans claim for the one of middle intellect, the best thing is to recognize, to meditate constantly, to see within and without oneself the workings of the law of opposites. What is yin and what is yang? What is heaven and what is earth? What is Shiva and what is Shakti? Constantly discriminate. This is a path which is applied in many, many, many spiritualities. If you run, if you are part of a religion where there is God and then there is also the adversary, the devil, who is hunting your soul and trying to destroy you, that is actually a form of discrimination. And every religious Jew or Christian or Muslim would say, stay away from the devil and go to the kingdom of God. That's a discrimination. It's studying the universe as a battle camp, as a battleground between two opposite forces, darkness and light, Unreal and real. Tantra says, what is unreal and what is real? 
How can unreal exist outside of the real? Who created the unreal? Because if the unreal was created by the real, then the real cannot create unreal because it's real. And therefore, it's the same. This is the paradox. At the middle level, exactly this attitude. Let's discriminate between the spiritual and the non-spiritual. This is going very, very deep for many people. They cannot see the import of this, but realize through his meditations in the Book of Changes, the commentary of Lao Tzu on the Taoist text of the I Ching, the Book of Changes. There, everything starts from yin and yang. When you have three yin and three yang, they can mix in eight different ways. Two multiplied two multiplied two. And these are called the trigrams, the eight trigrams. And when you move that to six, two trigrams, six times, that's two at the sixth potency, which is 64. And those are the famous 64 hexagrams of the I Ching. They are six-line characters, which are a binary code, because each one of the lines can be either yin or yang. If you are a computer fanatic, you can even convert them in zeros, and ones. And it's all a six-digit combination of zeros and ones. And thus, you have got the hexagrams. And with the hexagrams, Lao Tzu writes the famous, a famous piece of Taoist literature, which those of you interested in Taoism and yin-yang and this should necessarily read one day. It's the famous, it's a thick book, it's the Book of Changes, as it is translated in the West, or the Book of Transformation in Chinese, the I Ching, which is describing the evolution of everything. I Ching is used by most people today as a method of divination, to divine the future. You are throwing some copper coins or using some Achillea sticks, and you throw them in certain ways, and by the way they fall, you decide the six lines of a hexagram, which is the answer to your question. Therefore, you can obtain answers from the universe by the method of I Ching. It's one of the most perfect divination methods which has been invented in this world, together with, for example, the Taro method of the Kabbalists, which today has degenerated into the vulgar card games, where you play cards, and a couple of other minor methods, such as the Dakini oracles of Tibet, and a few others similar. So, what I'm saying here is the following thing. <coughs> I Ching, in the Book of Changes, Lao Tzu, by meditating in his Ajna Chakra on Yin and Yang... He has seen the development of the universe. A modern image for this is the following. You can take a video image on a television screen. And it can be a very complex image. Now the resolution and the special effects have become so gigantic. You can play some images. When you sometimes go to cinemas, it's digital image on the cinema screen. 
and it's flabbergasting. It's a total magic. But funnily enough, every computer expert knows that that image is ultimately generated by a series of zeros and ones. Zeros and ones are converted by the filters, by the video converters, and transformed into a colorful, sometimes 3D image. That 3D image is zeros and ones. Everything starts from yin and yang. From yin and yang, you can develop the 3D, 4D, 5D, 6D, whatever, universe. Everything starts from two things. That's how the dance of the universe starts. Shiva and Shakti, yin and yang. And then those two combining in the ways described in the book of changes, in the I Ching, they create everything. Of course, Lao Tzu does not go to the details. Lao Tzu says in the middle it's two, then on a higher circle it's eight, the trigrams, but it, your mind is still not prepared to understand the trigrams. They are too few and therefore too essential. And therefore if we go a few steps even outside, on an even more outer circle, we find 64 hexagrams. And with the 64 hexagrams, those of you that are smart enough can understand those things, Lao Tzu. And therefore, he writes a text where he describes the 64 hexagrams, and then he meditates, and he writes a blurb. He writes a short description of the evolution of the system when it goes in that direction. It's incredible. Any one of you who will use the book of changes for divination or just reading it as a spiritual reading, you'd be amazed because when you read, if you go to any of the hexagrams and say, let's suppose I'm doing this and I obtain as answer this hexagram, like you are asking... You know, what is my future in this life? Very legitimate question. Everybody asks themselves such a question. You can ask the I Ching. What is my future in this life? And then you get a hexagram. And then you read. That, that commentary is written like by a man in a high state of trance. It almost makes no sense when you read it the first time. It's almost like bird's language. It's a twilight language. It's a very strange thing. And after you read it, you, said, you say, what? And then let's read it again. After you read it, like Gurdjieff said, after you read it three times, then you start understanding something. Because that text is meant that you meditate on it. It's not a text which you just read like the newspaper. It's something on which you meditate because it's still very close to Shiva and Shakti. It's not on the ring of eight, it's on the ring of 64. But it's still very close to the top of the pyramid of the universe. And therefore it represents the things to come. We are not 64 people on earth. We are m more than 7 billion probably at this time. So the diversity is way, way more than 64. It's many, many, many more potencies of two taken from there. 
we are living our lives far, far from the center of the universe, on a very outer circle, on a periphery. Lao Tzu cannot describe the periphery, because then all the books in this pla- on this planet would not be enough for describing everything. Lao Tzu is going to some archetypal, causal principles, and this is the famous book of changes, the book of transformation. That's why do not underestimate the power of yin and yang. Whole metaphysics of the universe have been written starting from this yin and yang thing. When you meditate on them and see them everywhere, there is a whole miracle of the universe unfolding in front of the human being. And that's why living your life according to this meditation, discriminate, show me always which are the opposites. It's a very important spiritual practice. It is especially the practice of discrimination. And finally, rising at the third level, Tibetan yogis say, for one of superior intellect, the best thing is to have thorough comprehension of the inseparableness of the knower, the object of knowledge, and the act of knowing. Like subject, object, and the relationship between them are one. Therefore, for the highest level of metaphysical spiritual intelligence, the Tibetans then recommend meditate on oneness. Meditate on the unification of everything into oneness. Echoing this, Ramakrishna did not think that monism, Advaita Vedanta, is for everyone. Although the disciple of Ramakrishna, Swami Vivekananda of India, did teach extensively Vedanta, and he became famous with it, and he wrote extensively in his books, Jnana, Yoga, and others about it, that was actually a bit of going against the word of his own guru. Ramakrishna did not want to do this. Ramakrishna realized that normal people are not having this superior intelligence and that they will not be able to really get it. That's why Ramakrishna taught elements of his Vedantic knowledge. People who write about the life of Ramakrishna, they claim that Ramakrishna closely like this taught it maybe to 10 or 20 people in all of his life. It's not that he didn't know Vedanta, but he simply thought most of the people are not prepared for Advaita Vedanta. So what did Ramakrishna teach? Ramakrishna sang Kirtan and Bhajan for worshipping Kali. Everybody should worship Kali. You know, forget about Advaita Vedanta. That's what Ramakrishna concluded, and he even spoke in unequivocal words about it. The funny thing is that his own disciple, 
Vivekananda, somehow he felt from his own spiritual inspiration that the times had changed, that the circumstances had changed. He was teaching yoga not in the rural Indian environment anymore, but he was teaching it in the West to people having a different standard of education. And then Vivekananda took the responsibility of teaching Vedanta much more than was the advice of Ramakrishna, because being alive and being enlightened, he simply could make his own judgments on the matter. But Ramakrishna, in the environment where he was, he simply said, Don't, not many people are prepared to go there. That is why, in a similar streak, also the Tibetans tell us, only for the ones of superior intellect, and by this we mean metaphysical superior intellect, the best thing is to have thorough comprehension of the inseparableness of the knower, the object of knowledge, and the act of knowing. <laughs> this is a bit tedious, like they could have said, meditate on the oneness of all things. But the Tibetans had to say it in this way, because this story with the knower, knowledge, and the known, knowledge, known, and knower, is a typical syntagm. It's an expression which is used extensively in Indian yoga, in Buddhist psychology, and many of the spiritual practices. This is, again, like for us, for some of you, it can sound tedious. Like, why of all things did they choose the knower, the knowledge, and the act of knowing, and so on? The knower, the known, and the knowledge. Why didn't they choose some other triad? Why would they focus? Because this triad of knower, known, and knowledge is extremely often used in Indian philosophy, and therefore for them it was like referring to something very... It's exactly like I told, I'm telling to you now, it's exactly like the binary code in a computer. And people would say, why does Swami refer of all things to a computer? No. Because it's the 21st century, many of you even come to a lecture with a computer. Almost every person in this room owns a computer. That's the future unless we nuke ourselves out of existence 20 years from now. Everybody will use computers even more than now. And my own background is engineering and electronics, so it comes just natural to use analogies about computers and binary code. Exactly in a similar way, for the Tibetans it was natural to use this philosophical syntagm <coughs> that the best way of expressing oneness is the inseparableness of knower, known, and knowledge itself. And starting with the statement number four, the Tibetan text is turning again to the ones of little intellect. It's three times three. It went through all three and it said, for this one the best is this, for this one the best is this. Now, it approaches in a different way. For one of little intellect, number four, the best meditation is complete concentration of the mind upon a single object. 
What is that? That is Trataka. Trataka is the most brilliant example of concentration of the mind on one single object. Other examples would be Shambhavi Mudra and any other form of concentration of the mind. Visual, auditory, kinesthetic, it doesn't matter. For one of little intellect, that's the best meditation. Like, the best meditation is to concentrate on a single object, such as, such as your breath. Then it's anapana. It's the beginning of the vipassanas. In the beginning, focus on the breath. One single object, nothing else. This is very refreshing, and it says it very clearly. If you are not into rocket science, spiritually speaking... Start with concentration of the mind, exactly as the law of karma can save the day, can save your ass, as I said earlier, exactly in the same way as spiritual practice, what can save, again, your soul, the day, is the concentration on one single object. Do not underestimate that. Yes, men and women of extraordinary spiritual intelligence, they have more advanced practices than that. But sometimes it's not necessary. You have to know your measure of things. If you imagine that you have horns on your head when you actually are born as an eagle, you are living in a total phantasm and in the moment when you'll try to strike with your horns, you'll discover the sad truth that you never had horns. That is why <clears throat> here the things are very clear. We can't express it more clearly than that. That is why this is the equivalent of what Kashmiri Shaivism calls Anavopaya. In Anavopaya, you focus honestly, straightforwardly on things. No fancy things, no variations. You bend over, you do your Padahastasana, you focus on the telluric streams of energy rising through the legs, focusing in Muladhara Chakra, bringing of some extra telluric energy in the area of the torso and trunk, and discharging of the exceeding energies, of the toxic energies, through palms and fingers, back into the ground. This circuit and this process, that's what you focus on. It's extremely clear, and this is the practice, the best practice recommended by the Tibetan yogis for people whose mental capacity is not overwhelming. Five, for one of average intellect, the best meditation is unbroken concentration of the mind upon the two dualistic concepts, such as phenomena and noumena, or otherwise said manifestation and non-manifestation, samsara and nirvana, or otherwise said of consciousness and matter. Therefore, 
Here is a different the meditation on Shiva and Shakti, spirit, energy. This would correspond often to the Shaktopaya from the Kashmiri Shaivism, creating this powerful tension between opposites. Therefore, for the one of average intellect, the best meditation is unbroken concentration of the mind upon the two opposites, on the two dualistic concepts, consciousness and matter. This in itself is very clear, like when you do, let's say, a yoga technique, where is the spirit, where is the matter, where is the discrimination between the two, what is awareness, what is energy, how do you see them as different, how do you perceive in yourself the difference between the higher self and the chakras, the energies and other phenomena which happen with you, within you and all that. So here it follows the statement from above about yin and yang focusing on opposites. Finally, six again takes us to the superior intellect and it says for one of superior intellect the best meditation is to remain in mental quiescence, like peace, knowing that the mind devoid of all meditation, the one who meditates and the act of meditating constitute an inseparable unity. Again, a triad. The mind devoid of meditation. When the mind is devoid of meditation, what does it have? The mind which is not even meditating, which is, is just a quiet presence. So that is the I, that is the subject. So knowing that, one, the mind devoid of all meditation, which is the subject, the one who meditates and the act of meditating constitute an inseparable unity. You have the same triadic thing. Knower knowledge and known. <clears throat> Therefore, it's the same triadic thing, it's going into oneness, but it is by simply remaining in mental quiescence. Those of you who studied Kashmiri Shaivist intro workshops in this school at one point or another, or when you will study it in the future, you will see that during the Kashmiri Shaivism I give a description of Shivopaya, of the highest methods of practice, Shambhavopaya, in Kashmiri Shaivism. And as one of the authors puts it, as Chatterjee puts it, whom I quote in that text, he says, as about the practices of Shivopaya, they constitute in remaining without any vikalpa, remaining without any thought, and everybody starts smiling or even laughing because they say, yeah, but that's the very definition of the state of samadhi. So it's like, basically he says that to have to do this practice, you have to start by putting yourself into a sort of a samadhi. Then why do you need to do the practice anymore? You know, it's like this one seems to start with the end already. It seems to start with the goal and then it's like, 
how far, how deep does this rabbit hole go? Exactly the same thing is said here. For the one of superior intellect, therefore, practicing the most advanced methods, the best meditation is to remain in mental quiescence, knowing that the knower, the known, and the knowledge, the mind devoid of meditation, the one who meditates, and the act of meditating constitute an inseparable unity. Again, the meditation is on oneness, but expressed in a funny way. Here they don't use knowledge, known and knower. They say the mind, the one who meditates, and the act of meditating. They rise it by expressing it as facets of the mind and of the meditation process. So again, they took us to this high level. And now we start the last triad, where they start again with the lower one, and let's see what they have to say at the third pass, as they pass three times through this. They said what the best thing is, philosophically, as attitude, what is the best practice, and now they go. For one of little intellect, this is the bullet number seven, for one of little intellect, again, the best religious practice, they call it religious practice, because in Tibet they were Buddhists, and they they call that the religion. But we can replace easily the word religious with spiritual. The best spiritual practice is to live in strict conformity with the law of cause and effect. Not only to meditate and to have faith, but the best practice is to live according to the law of karma. Make this attempt for one week. For one week consider that the law of karma might be 100% absolutely true and right. Like Act as if you believed 100% in the law of karma. And stay aware all the time of this. And you will see life becomes very, very different when you live your life like that. That's why they don't give sophisticated practices. They say, if you are one of those that Jesus calls blessed are the poor in spirit, the poor in spirit, the best practice for the poor in spirit is to live in strict conformity with the law of cause and effect. Many people will underestimate this. And again, some people may believe that they are buffaloes when they are eagles. There is nothing shameful in being an eagle. It's just a different talent. Some people are romantically emotional, and when they emotionally, romantically believe in God, they can go into a three-year retreat and do meditation all the time and be extremely devoted. And some people can have not too much romanticism and devotion, but, for example, they can have a splendid diamond-sharp, crystal-clear 
intelligence. Not everybody is gifted in the same way, and the one who is romantic, devoted, is as powerful as the one that is intelligent and sharp, only that they climb the mountain on two different pathways. That is why it never says here that if you are born with little intellect, you can't reach Buddhahood. But if you discover that your metaphysical insight is not of the strongest level, like a simple example, we have people who have gone to our Kashmiri Shaivism study group, and after three weeks they bucked out of it, and they said, it's not me. I don't understand much. I don't get any intellectual satisfaction from reading and commenting those things. I prefer to go Friday evening and do some bhajan and kirtan. I am not saying that bhajan and kirtan is inferior in any way to Kashmiri Shaivist study group. It's only that Kashmiri Shaivist study group uses a high level of intellectual power, and bhajan and kirtan uses love, romantic infatuation with God, devotion, surrender, kundalini, and a lot of intense feelings, and both of them can take you to the top of the mountain. But there are people in this school who never attended a bhajan and a kirtan, and there are people in this school who never attended a Kashmiri Shaivism study group. Why? Simply because people are different, and you have to acknowledge who you are, trying to live in someone else's shoes is not going to serve any purpose in spirituality. Yes, live in strict conformity with the law of cause and effect. Is it possible to bend the law of cause and effect? Yes, if you have a formidable Ajna Chakra, you can play with karma. Because Ajna Chakra does influence karma. But if you are one of those of little intellect, means you are not very good in your Ajna Chakra. And your hope of fiddling with karma is phantasmagoric and unrealistic. Therefore, when you have little intellect, live scrupulously according to the law of cause and effect. Don't get carried on by your peer who might be an Aries, a Gemini, or some high intellectual type, type of person and who sees and experiences things in a very different way than you do. Fight with the weapon and the organ which God gave to you in this life. That will produce maximum effects in the shortest time. And number eight, for the one of average intellect, the best religious practice, spiritual practice, is to regard all objective things as though they were images seen in a dream or produced by magic. It's one of the most famous Vedantic meditations of India, and it is used a lot in the six yogas of Naropa in the Tibetan yoga, 
for the yoga of dream, for the yoga of the clear light, for the yoga of the illusory body, that the first thing you have to convince yourself that even this is a sort of a dream. You are not dreaming only when you think you are dreaming. You are dreaming also now. Only it's a different level of dream, and this level of dream you call it reality. Because people can't see through it. And when you dream, you say, ah, that was just a dream. So is this. In the yogas of Naropa, one of the techniques which is given to practitioners who try to be lucid in their dreams, and sometimes our teachers tell you this in the Yoga Nidra lecture, one of the practices, because many people say, how can we become better at lucid dreaming and this? Here is an advice from Tibetan yogis. But of course, they lived alone in the mountains, so they, they would not create a lot of commotion among the villagers. They, they were living alone, so they could do any crazy thing they wanted, because there was no community around them. And they were advised, if you don't manage to get clear dreams, Start trying all the time to look around and to feel, to make yourself feel, even this is a dream. I am dreaming right now. They say go on a rock where you can see a lot of space, like on a mountain. Go on a place where you have a vantage point, a great viewpoint. Look at the whole huge space, mountains, valleys, trees, whatever is there, and shout in your full voice, this is a dream. This is an illusion. Like, tell to your subconscious mind, even this is an illusion. Of course, according to your family, according to the so-called sanity of the mind, according to the society, somebody could commit you in an institution if you do that in the so-called civilized world. It's like you were a normal person, you are coming from a decent family and from good parents. You have uh, graduated some school. And now you start going around like an idiot, saying all this is an illusion. Then what will you do? Take a gun and pretend you are in the matrix and shoot everybody because it doesn't matter. It's all a dream. And then put the gun in your mouth and pull the trigger for the last bullet. Or What will you do? Because this sounds like schizophrenia. It sounds like severe mental disease. It's like, you know, there are many schizophrenic people who go around asking themselves honestly, I don't think I exist. I don't think this... And there is a grain of genius in what they say. But it is only interpreted in the painful, negative, dark and demonic way. And it produces in them pain, death and suffering instead of producing enlightenment. It is beautiful that Stanislaw Grof, the psychologist, said a wonderful word at some point. He said, it is interesting to see that the madman and the saint are swimming in the same waters, only that the madman drowns and the saint obtains ecstasy. I have encountered in my life many schizophrenic people endowed with clairvoyance, endowed with paranormal capabilities of the mind.
having Ajna Chakra abilities and although they were having high abilities of the mind, they were lower than an average person. They were living in a deeper hell than somebody who didn't have any ability because those abilities were grafted on a rotten tree. Their tree, the trunk of their tree, was rotten. There was something fundamentally wrong at the very core of their being. And then adding a big, big burden, a big fruit somewhere on top of their tree only contributed into breaking and maiming the tree faster. It actually made things worse. A schizophrenic person without paranormal abilities or clairvoyance is more modest and does less evil and suffers less than a schizophrenic person that is endowed with some paranormal abilities. That's the paradox of it. And that is why this is a funny thing that you go around considering everything an illusion. Oh, this is a dream. Your grandma passes away. Why not? Your mother passes away. And you go around smiling and saying it's a dream. So everybody in your family will throw rotten tomatoes at you. It's like you have been meeting with Swami Vivekananda and Swami Vivekananda has made you insane. It's like you have gone a decent person to Thailand and after 10 years you turn back home and you are damaged goods. You know, like your family says... We can't do anything with you anymore. You know, you are damaged. You know, it's like, what are you good? Now you are going around saying that the whole damn thing is an illusion. And we are working our asses to buy some land and to build a house. And you are scorning us, saying, guys, this is just a dream in another big dream. You know, it's like you are... It's not people get irritated by this. People want to shoot you because of this. People want to beat you up. People want to pour ice-cold water over your head and say, wake up. That's why spiritual people are not comfortable, exactly as madness itself, spirituality is another kind of madness. I remember a poem in which a mother witnesses the death of her own son, who is a hero, and he is brought back dead from battle. And it's after suffering, like a mother suffers, like, you know, the Virgin Mary type of suffering at the feet of the cross, seeing her son crucified. Then she suffers so much that something snaps in her mind and she starts laughing. And then, as, you know, then everybody says, oh no, the woman, the old woman got crazy. It was too much for her. And the last verse which the woman or the author of the poem says actually in that poem is you shall not, you should not research too much into these things, into these laws, for when you understand them, you are crazy. Like wisdom is equivalent for many people to madness. <coughs> And that is why this sounds very extreme 
for one of the average intellect, the shaktopaya, the discriminating yin-yang, the best spiritual practice is to look at all objective things as images seen in a dream produced by magic. From the standpoint of the society, this is a severe distortion. You are not a good citizen anymore, and the society is not kind. If the society was not kind to Francis of Assisi, the society was not kind to Jesus, to Rumi, to Milarepa, to Ramakrishna, and the society, therefore, feels provoked because people are not sharing the same ideals. They try, they see something else. And finally, the ninth and the last of them, uh, of the three groups of three, it says, for one of superior intellect, the best spiritual practice is to abstain from all worldly desires and actions regarding all samsaric things as though they were non-existent. It's not considering them an illusion because this time the one of high intellect practices a sort of monism. And in that monism it says abstain from worldly desires and actions. What if they come in a spiritual way? Like, for example, Swami Shivananda did a lot of activity in the world. So did Buddha himself. And so did many others. Are they going against this principle? No. But for them, what they did was karma yoga. Like what they did was a mission which they had. And then for them, they abstained from worldly desires and action. You have to understand the fine implication of this. It doesn't say that you actually ab ab abstain from action, from all actions. It says you abstain from all worldly desires and actions. But Krishna himself is the charioteer of Arjuna. Krishna is actually harnessing horses. He is a horseman. He's a charioteer. Isn't that very worldly? Why is Krishna, who is God himself, an avatara, why is Krishna acting in the menial duty of being the charioteer of Arjuna? Charioteers were usually low-caste people. So why is Krishna, who is an enlightened being, playing charioteer of all things? Shouldn't he refrain from all worldly desires and actions regarding all samsaring things as they were non-existent? But for Krishna, this is God. He is in God all the time. He simply, for him, these are not worldly desires and actions. It's the movement of the cosmic consciousness which produces the events where he is part of and he cannot stop himself from being a part. He says, Arjuna, look at me. There is nothing for me to be fulfilled in the three worlds and yet I am still in action. He praises action. He says, even God, 
does not stop from action. And it's not because it has worldly interests, worldly desires. Because for God, they don't appear as worldly anymore because they are seen from the standpoint of oneness. So here there is a fine, a very fine way of saying it, which would serve both people of an ascetic orientation and people of a tantric orientation. It depends how you look on it. So the, for the one of superior intellect, the best practice is to have this oneness in action. If while you are in action, something seems like being worldly and something is spiritual, you are actually at the level of the average intellect as defined here, because you discriminate. You still discriminate. This is God and this is not God. Now I am doing something spiritual, now I am wasting my time and doing something unspiritual. But at the highest level, this does not exist. Swami Shivananda, even when he bargains to buy a plot of land to build a colony for lepers or an eye hospital, he's doing the work of God. He is God in action. That is the cosmic consciousness moving and doing things. Therefore, Swami Shivananda refrains, abstains from worldly desires and actions, not because he abstains from actions. There is a change in the quality of consciousness. He sees and feels things in another way than the normal person, and then what he does is karma yoga, is divine action. That is the fine interpretation here. Transform everything into oneness, even in your action. Finally, the last point which we are going to comment on tonight is the following. As a conclusion, three times three, you have been given what's the best for this, what's the best for that, what's the best for the third one. And now, the tenth is a sort of a colophon, general conclusion, which says, for those of all three grades of intellect, for all of them now, the best indication of spiritual progress is the gradual diminution of obscuring passions and selfishness. It's invaluable. This is as invaluable as is the judgment of Jesus when he was asked by the disciples, how should we recognize what is false and what is true in so many spiritual aberrations? And Jesus says, any tree shall be known by its fruits. People can tell things as big as earth and heaven. If the fruits are shitty, the tree is shitty. It's as simple as that. As all the big things, the great truths are simple and in your face. If Swami Shivananda teaches yoga and people keep getting sick and dying, 
then Swami Shivananda is doing the wrong thing. He may argue brilliantly of what he is doing. If the fruits of the tree are bad, the tree is bad. In a similar way, you see that the Tibetans also find a beautiful evaluation. Like people can be of many different types of intellect. People may resort to many different practices. There are so many people who have so many philosophies. A thousand years ago, maybe we had five, six major religions being practiced on the face of this earth. Now, in the New Age subculture, I remember reading a magazine in 1995 where they said that in Los Angeles alone, seven new religions were being registered officially with the American government every week. We had five major religions for a thousand years, and in the 20th century we had seven per week appearing. And the 20th century was the most murderous and murderous and bloodshedding century in the history of humanity. Something is rotten. The tree shall be known by its fruits. And therefore, it's obvious that those religions are not religions but total bollocks. And therefore, the Tibetans simply give a wonderful, clear Ajna chakra, boiled down meditation, discriminative thing. For all the three grades of intellect, like wherever you are, it doesn't matter. The best indication, the best indication of spiritual progress is the gradual diminishing, diminution, decrease of obscuring passions and selfishness. If three years after you started yoga, you are more selfish than three years ago, something is wrong. That is not a sign of spiritual progress. You should notice a diminishing of your selfishness day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. If there is no diminishing of selfishness, you are treading on the same spot. It's moonwalking. You seem to be going forward, but you are actually treading backwards or something. It's just a phony thing. It's not working. There are two clear signs. The diminishing of selfishness and of obscuring passions. That's a name which the Tibetans use extensively because they took it from the classical Buddhist metaphysics. Buddha says that the cause of suffering are these obscuring passions. Obscuring passions, they are given like the kleshas, the impurities of the mind defined by Patanjali. Ignorance, fear of death, laziness, and all those impurities which appear on each chakra, the typical, the, called, the so-called kleshas, the false knowledge, and all those, they are resulting in obscuring passions. For example, if you have too much greed, 
you will start hoarding. You will start hoarding money, food, houses, land, objects, wealth, a lot of things. And eventually, some people are hoarding spiritual books. Some people are hoarding mantras, initiations, knowledge. There is a greed at many levels, but it's still greed. Therefore, each one of these kleshas is resulting in obscuring passions. Obscuring. What is the obscurity? The obscurity is the obscuring of awareness. When people are greedy, when people are lazy, when people are jealous, when people are angry, when people are ignorant and stupid, and all the rest, they never act consciously. They are like hypnotized. There is an unconsciousness, and the human being partly acts like an animal. It's a gut thing. There's not thinking in it. It's a sort of primitive reaction. And people ask them, why do you do that? I don't know, I don't know. Let me, I just have to do it. Stop. Think a little bit. Why are you doing this? Is it really worth uh, I, I can't think right now. Like the person blindly, as possessed, the person goes forward. These are, that's why they are called obscuring passions. When people kill somebody, when people steal, when people do all sorts of transgressions of yama and niyama, when people are producing negative karma, why do they produce negative karma? Because of the obscuring passions. Because those passions are exactly like when somebody says, and then I saw red in front of my eyes. When you see red in front of your eyes, there's nothing to be proud about. Because then you turned into an unconscious animal for a few moments. That was an obscuring passion. But people say, but it served me well. Yeah, you got lucky. Maybe your karma was good and then you are automatically protected. There are people who sleepwalk and while sleepwalking they can walk on the edge of the roof and they don't fall. But it doesn't mean that sleepwalking is legitimate and healthy. The fact that you can get lucky where you, while you are doing some act of unconsciousness, it doesn't mean that you were in full awareness. I remember a very Zvadistana phantasmagoric person who once was telling me how proud he was that he put himself in a stupid situation and then he realized that there might have been a cobra by his feet and he hopped up and he kind of got away with it. That's just Swadhisthana adventurism. That's just living in a James Bond movie. It's not an act of consciousness. It's simply that you get lucky. And the graveyard is full of people who got lucky a hundred times, and then the hundred and first time they were not lucky anymore. 
That has nothing to do with awareness or with an act of the... That's playing Russian roulette. And it's happening on Zvadistana all the time. Therefore, unfortunately... That's why the Tibetans say the biggest obstacle in the human being are selfishness, egoism, is simply the way in which you build a wall around yourself. The ridiculous thing that is that people that build a wall, they feel that they are defending themselves. There's a jungle out there. You can't have a house without building a solid wall. But that wall has a double function. It keeps the world out of your territory, but it keeps you separate from the world as well. That's why a wall is not the solution. Shiva does not wall himself away from the world. Shiva pervades the world, fills up the world, impregnates the world by omnipresence. Omnipresence is the solution, not isolation. That is why egoism is a false security and Egoism is when we imprison ourselves due to our fear and other such things. And the second major part of this is obscuring passions. How many times today, how many times in the last week, how many times in the last year did you act out of an obscuring passion. How often have you been possessed by some irrational thing stemming from fear, stemming from greed, stemming from jealousy, stemming from anger, originating from ignorance, stupidity, and other such impurities. That those are the obscuring passions. You cannot reach a reasonable level of consciousness while that is happening. Do you think that, for example, Paramahamsa Yogananda or Mananda Mai, they sometimes in their lives they did little things which were, you know, just unconscious? Yes. Because almost nobody in this world reaches 100% perfect total divine consciousness 24-7. To reach that would mean to be God permanently in full samadhi 24-7 all the time. Maybe avatars like Jesus, like Krishna, maybe they raised at some point of their life to push this human brain and body into such a momentum that they could force it to be electrified in that incredible state of spirit. For the rest, rest assured, even great spiritual teachers, when they sit up straight and they go in Sahasrara, suddenly it's full awareness, and when they get caught in the flow of daily events, sometimes they remember Sometimes they let it pass. But for example, when Paramahamsa Yogananda 
has to react out of greed and he's about to do some greedy thing, suddenly he will have a moment of awareness and he will say, wait, 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 wait. Then he really, you know, is this of benefit to the world? Is this of benefit to all the sentient beings? Is this an act of obscuring passion or an act of karma yoga where God acts in the world? And then he might take it back. He might simply say, well, after all, no, I don't do it. It's fine. Like, realize, not everybody has got a full-on awareness 24-7. It's utopian. How do you go from moments, like I can tell you now, no? Close your eyes and be aware. Be here and now. Full presence. Who are you? Where are you? What is happening right now? No? Mindfulness. Presence. This, no? this you can do. How many? Going from this state which you, call, which you hold for 20 seconds to hold it 24-7, there's a big gap. Don't imagine that it goes from almost nothing to everything just because you have had a state of samadhi or two or 35 of them. It becomes more and more and more. It's like shades of gray. And at the upper end of that, there you have the idealistic, perfect case of the person who, like Jesus, walks and speaks and says, I and my Father are one and the same. <coughs> this is the acme of it when it exists permanently. That is why, of course, in the human being, even in the advanced practitioners, even in the masters of yoga, there exists a certain graduation and that graduation, Tibetan yoga brilliantly gives you an alternative to what Jesus says, with the tree shall be known by the fruits. Tibetan yoga says the best indication of spiritual progress is the gradual diminution or diminishing of obscuring passions and selfishness. You see that in yourself? It's a very good sign. If today you have less obscuring passions, less greed, less ignorance, less laziness, less jealousy, less anger than a year ago, if you have less selfishness, you are definitely less selfish, that's an excellent sign. You have done well. It's the best indication of spiritual progress. If you don't, then it's time to sit down and ask yourself some serious questions. Because the methodology of yoga works, but in the moment when it is not applied intensely and properly, some people do it like in a useless way. Yoga is not only about bending over and stretching your hamstrings and Know, getting more elastic hips and lower back and all that. That's definitely a benefit. But what about the obscuring passions and selfishness? 
Those are the enemies. Never forget that. In Tantric Yoga, it's easy to forget that because we have so many wonderful ideals. We work on the chakras. We have this approach full of joy, emotion, and energy, and all that. But if you make a survey and you increase in obscuring passions, then it means somehow you are going in a wrong direction, and then you should get some consultation, you should search your heart and see, are you really willing to diminish your obscuring passions and your selfishness? Because that's the way to reach to the Buddha nature. That's the way to reach to the Supreme Self. If you go in spirituality, you say, I want to reach Atman. I want to reach the Supreme Self. I want to be immortal. I want to know God. I want to be one with... I want Unio Mystica. I want to mystically be united with God. It's all very beautiful and nice in theory and in words. But when you do that, the direction of that is of less selfishness. God is not selfish. There is no selfishness. God is a universal consciousness which belongs to all and exists everywhere. Less selfishness and definitely less obscuring passions. It's not less passions. You can love God passionately. And that's called bhakti yoga. It's fine. Then you are like Rumi. You passionately, within, with your intoxicated eyes, you look into the eyes of God. There is nothing wrong with that. Obscuring passions. They are passions which produce momentary forgetfulness. You forget who you are. You forget what you are doing in this world. You forget why you are here. You forget your divine nature. You forget consciousness. That's why they are not called passions. They are called obscuring passions. You can, a man can love a woman so much and even passionately make love to her that he sees God in this sexual union, in his Shakti, <coughs> and he reaches ecstasy. Then this is a passion. He says, I've got such a passion for my Shakti. But it's a passion which enlightens him because it becomes Tantra Bhakti. It's he loves God even through the sexual function, even through a partner. On the other hand, a man loves a woman and starts seeing a selfish property in her. He wants to possess her, to own her, to manipulate her, to do all sorts of things to her, and then he is, that is an obscuring passion. For that woman, then the man is capable to lie, to kill, to steal, to do whatever. That's an obscuring passion. Love and sex can simply become an obscuring passion, like a desire, and love and sex can become a divine passion, but you have to do it right. 
That's why so many people, people want to bring their obscuring passions with them. They come to Tantra and we tell them the rules in Tantra are different than in the normal world. In the normal world, you do sex without Brahmacharya. In Tantra, you do sex with Brahmacharya. That's not an accident. It is so because otherwise sex and the romantic love which results from it becomes an obscuring passion. It's not a divine passion anymore. The tantric, simply the rules which exist in tantra, such as love your partner, your lover, without jealousy. It doesn't, many people say, oh, you guys in Agama are preaching multiple relationships. We don't. It has been said a hundred times, and we keep saying, we don't. Those who can maintain a divine relationship in a single relationship, they are perfectly welcome to do it so. But the point is, unfortunately, that we see that many people go into a relationship, and that relationship becomes obscuring passion for them. People say, but Swami, aren't multiple relationships also an obscuring passion for some? Like, for example, aren't just some people giving free vent to their sexual sleaziness and just becoming like sex-obsessed? Yes, there's also an obscuring passion in that you are not either into closed relationships or open. There's no guarantee that you will not turn it into an obscuring passion. <clears throat> because the obscuring passion is not due to the relationship. The obscuring passion is due to your quality. You come from a previous life with those kleshas in your chakras, with those impurities. You are used to do things impurely, because otherwise you would be enlightened already. And you would come here as a Buddha, visiting, out of compassion. But as long as you are one of the people in the game, it means you still haven't purified some of the selfishness and obscuring passions until now. And therefore, it is to be expected that practicing yoga, practicing healing, practicing sexual tantra, or whatever you do, you will bring with you that maimed midget from your brain, that those kleshas, the impure mind with its deformities, and you will try to apply it into what you do. There are so many people who are doing even yoga in very selfish and ugly ways. For many people, it has become a money industry. It has become an ego-boosting thing. There are, you know, like I remember I was talking today with someone who told me it is incredible. I came out of that environment and I, now I started teaching spirituality in a beautiful, strong way. And everybody in my environment, all my friends, they just wanted to go to the selfish dope-smoking, gymnastic, fake yoga, which I knew before, and 
I understood then suddenly, said that person to me, <coughs> now I can see it from a totally different perspective. Because many people go to yoga, but if you take the bourgeois hell from your mind with you in your yoga, then even yoga can be promoted like a bourgeois hell. The world is full of so-called yoga practitioners who are living in their own personal hell because they are ruled by a lot of selfishness and a lot of <coughs> obscuring passions which they don't make any effort to eliminate. That is why the real spiritual practitioner, the man or the woman that has a spiritual vocation, is never becoming complacent. Because these people who do this, they become complacent. Their own mind shows them. Now you are selfish. And then something says, ah, you know, like, leave me alone. You know, it's, yes, I am selfish. I'm not Ramakrishna after all. No, I can't. Right? What do you want me to be perfect? This is where complacency and compromise starts. You are not interested in more and more selflessness. You are not interested in destroying the obscuring passions. You can say, hey, I cannot solve all of it today because I feel a bit weak. I am already fighting with other things. But I am fighting at least one battle somewhere in my life. So I can make a little compromise to say I don't have time now to deal with this. But if you find yourself over five years and you still didn't have dealt with it, then maybe something is cheating you. Maybe someone somehow is actually taking your awareness. That's, that is the sign of taking care of your soul in spiritual evolution. Constantly be vigilant. Is there a progress? Where is the progress? The progress is not in paranormal powers. You can acquire healing paranormal powers and become more selfish and further away from enlightenment and liberation. The real progress is in the diminishing of obscuring passions and in the diminishing of selfishness. It couldn't have been said more simple and more straightforward. It's a beautiful, like, you know, yes, me meditate on karma, meditate on yin and yang, live your life like this, and live. everything is beautiful. But finally, the final line says, for all of them, the sure sign of spiritual progress is the diminishing of obscuring passions and of selfishness. Like, don't fool yourselves with big words and fancy theories. You may do Kriya Yoga. You may do Dranvalo's Melchizedek Merkaba meditation. You may do I don't know what thing, and it may be a real system or not. You may be taking ayahuasca with Santo Daime every week in the jungle of Brazil. The problem is after 20 years, do you have more, less, or same amount of obscuring passions and selfishness? That is the way you verify it.
There are many beautiful things, and especially today in the New Age environment, we are witnessing an inflation of crazy spiritual things. There is one way to keep the compass in this, and sometimes you can even have the surprise that somebody from outside calls your attention, exactly like in the famous Hans Christian Andersen story, where it took a child to shout the obvious truth to everybody. The emperor is naked. The emperor pretended he was wearing, and everybody pretended they could see it, some incredible magic clothes. And then a child came and cut through the shit. Actually, the emperor is butt naked. That's the, so somebody might, ten years later, come to you and tell you, actually, you are selfish. Then you have to reevaluate. Of course, sometimes people can't see some things. It doesn't mean that if somebody tells you that, it's necessarily true. But in Romania, we also have a proverb which says, when two people tell you that you are drunk, go home and sleep. <laughs> go, go and take a nap. You know, like There is a certain common sense in the peer evaluation as well. So verify yourselves. If you can't see yourselves, verify yourselves through your peers, through your teachers. Take counsel and verify that indeed your selfishness and obscuring passions, not the divine passions, the divine passions are fine, but the obscuring passions are diminishing in your lives. Let us remain now in a very, very brief interiorization to let these things sink in, after which we will conclude for tonight. And with this we conclude. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining us here tonight. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.